when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We have a very special episode today. I'm talking to Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google and Alphabet. We spoke the day after Google I.O., the company's big developer conference, where Sundar introduced new generative AI features in virtually all of the company's products. It's an important moment for Google, which invented a lot of the core technology behind the current AI moment. The company is very quick to point out that the T in ChatGPT stands for Transformer, the large language model technology first invented at Google. But OpenAI and others have been first to market with generative AI products. And OpenAI in particular has partnered with Microsoft on a new version of Bing that feels like the first real competitor to Google search in a long time. So I wanted to know what Sundar thinks of this moment, and in particular, what he thinks about the future of search, which is the heart of Google's business. Web search right now can be pretty hit or miss. There's a lot of weird content farms out there, and AI-based search might be able to just answer questions in a more natural way. But that means remaking the web, and really, remaking Google. And Sundar is already going down the path of remaking Google. He just reorganized Google and Alphabet's AI teams, moving a company called DeepMind inside Google and merging it with the Google Brain AI group to form a new unit called Google DeepMind. You know I can't resist an org chart question, so we talked about why he made that decision and how he made it. We also talked about Sundar's vision for Google, where he wants it to go, and what's driving his ambition to take the company into the future. This is a jam-packed episode. Sundar and I talked about a lot, and I didn't even get to Google's AI metadata plans or what's going on with RCS and Android. Maybe next time. Okay, Sundar Pichai, CEO of Alphabet and Google. Here we go. Sundar Pichai, you are the CEO of Alphabet and Google. Welcome to Decoder. Nilay, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. There's a lot to talk about. I have some like big Decoder structure questions, because you made some big structural changes. It's real Decoder Bay. But I want to start with the news. Yesterday was Google I.O. You gave the keynote. You announced, I would say, generative AI features in like every Google product that I can think of. What's your favorite? 
Yeah, it's got to be the new search generative experience we yeah. are working on bringing to labs. Uh, it's our most used product, our most important product. And so the chance to make that product better through an evolution like that, you know, was one of the more exciting product challenges, I think. Yeah. And I, I think the team has risen to the challenge. So I'm definitely very excited about it. Yeah, there are two demos. I think that's very excited. I think you know I want to talk to you about search a lot. But there are two demos that caught my eye. One, you asked for a refund from an airline in mm -hmm. Gmail with the Compose, and Gmail just wrote the email for you. And then later, Dave Burke wrote an email to Rick Osterloh saying <laughs> Rick had done a good job. How would you feel if one of your employees wrote a suck-up email to you using generative AI? You know, it's a, it's a question... Uh, you know, I've been reflecting on, particularly <laughs> in personal context. Yeah. I think there'll be societal norm which will evolve over time. Yeah. Uh, you know, people will decide whether it's appropriate versus not. The last thing you want is an AI-generated email getting responded by AI. I think that's fine for the airline voucher case. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not fine in a personal case. <laughs> Though I've had friends who have said, there are moments where it's oh, they quite aren't the best at writing those types of emails mm -hmm. and they could use some help, right? So, uh, but I think over time as a society, we will figure out where the right uh, norms are. Do you think even in that airline case, there's an element of it that's programmatic, right? Where if you say the right words to the airline customer service agent, you might get a refund and the AI might know those right words. And that airline might say, look, we, we're going to have an AI just scanning emails for these correct words and giving refunds. And that might actually be the loop. You know, I'm worried today. Maybe airlines are already using <laughs> AI to look at your emails. So maybe it gives the uh, uh, humans a chance to get through. Yeah. You know, there are times it's okay to view it as there is efficient brokering yeah. in those cases so that two people can efficiently complete a transaction. And I, I think that's fine. But it depends on what the use case is for. But you're right. I think there'll be cases in which people will figure out, you know, there is a better efficient way to handle this back and forth, and maybe that's okay. Yeah. You're on the bleeding edge of this here. So I'm wondering, as you see those norms changing, have they changed in your work here at Google? Or are you saying, we're going to give it to a lot of people and see what happens? I went through this with Smart Reply and Smart Compose. Mm -hmm. At first it happened, I would feel weird using it. Later, it included emotion in those suggestions. Mm -hmm. I think I'm better now only at using an emotion which I genuinely feel. So I think people adapt to these things better than we think to. Uh, you know, I think humans very quickly learn how to use these technologies too. So I think that makes a difference. So, but I think we'll go through a similar journey like that with this. Yeah. All right, I want to zoom out. You said something in the keynote that really caught my attention. You said that AI is a platform shift. And I think I agree with you, but it struck me that it's important to understand exactly what you mean by a platform shift. Why do you think AI is a platform shift and what does that mean to you? Definitely, I see it as an extraordinary platform shift. Mm -hmm. Pretty much it'll touch everything, every sector, every industry, every aspect of our lives. So one way to think about it is no different from how we have thought about maybe the personal computing shift, the internet shift, the mobile shift. So along that dimension, I think it's a big shift. But I think it's deeper than that. Um, I've, I've called it the most profound technology humanity is working on. I think it'll tap into the essence of, even to your starting questions, there's mm -hmm. a reason you asked about that. 
I think that shows the nature of what AI is. And so I think it'll touch everything we do. So I view it as one of those more deeper shifts that way. Uh, Tough to find the right words, but I view it as it will, even as an industry, like a very traditional industry, you wouldn't say internet affected healthcare a lot. Mm -hmm. Did it affect healthcare? I'm not fully sure, right? You know, and... But with AI, I think about it, I'm like, it's going to affect healthcare a lot over time. And so along those terms, I think there's a deeper meaning to the word platform shift here, uh, I mean, as well. On the smaller definition, right? <laughs> there weren't personal computers and there, were, there wasn't the internet. And there, That's right. There, was, there wasn't mobile. There wasn't cloud. And now yeah. right? And mobile and cloud in particular just yeah. changed the way we behave and like yeah. across every dimension you can think of. That's what I think of a platform shift as, yeah. right? It's a very narrow, it's much more it's, parochial it's still than yours. Very big. Yeah, 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 right? It's still very big. Um, we can get into the philosophy of can computers communicate with us, and I, we will. Yeah. But just on, the, on that level, okay, it's a platform shift. A lot of people are going to change their behavior. Yeah. That's usually when companies emerge, and it is when institutions tend to fade. Google is a company that emerged, mm-hmm. right, particularly with the internet. And with the shift to mobile, I think, became a a dominant player. Do you see that risk for Google inside of this platform shift? You know, I felt the risk more with mobile. Mm-hmm. You know, here's why. I think we had to adapt to mobile as a company. We were built on the internet. We weren't, by any stretch of imagination at the time, what I would call as a mobile native company. So mobile was something which came and, you know, we had to adapt to it hard across our products. And it was a disruptive moment. You know, people were using applications now directly. You could install apps on your phone and so on. So there was a lot of questions. With AI, I feel like this is our seventh year as an AI-first yeah. company. You know, I feel we are AI native. You know, pretty much most teams at Google intuitively understand what it is to use AI in our products. Also, we've driven the state of the art in some ways. We, have helped, we are helping drive this platform shift. So I feel we are AI native. We deeply understand what it is to both drive the state of the technology and incorporate it in our products. All these shifts are disruptive. But I look at the scale and size of the opportunity ahead with AI. And we've invested so deeply in AI for a while. And we have clarity of not just building AI in our products, clearly providing it to the rest of the world. And we have planned for that from the very beginning. So it makes me excited about this moment. You said it's seven years of AI first company. I've seen you demo LLMs in the past. I've seen other generative AI tech at IO in the past. You've been talking about it for a long time. 2015, one of the biggest debates we had coming into Google IO was I wanted to show, we were launching photos. I wanted to show that these were powered by deep neural networks. Yeah. There was such a debate coming into the keynote, do we show? Because we were taking a frog and showing how the network would Figure out it's a frog. (laughs) And people were scared. You know, they were like, you know, why are you showing the legs of a frog that it first understands, you know, you're breaking a frog into its component parts. Uh, But I felt it was important to explain to the world that there's a shift called deep neural networks, which was going to change everything. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, uh, it made me reflect on that. We've been talking about this for a long time. Yeah, I remember very clearly you once had a conversation with Pluto. And, That's right. And no one could quite figure out why you were talking to Pluto. And you skip ahead to now, and it's like, oh, that was the technology, and that was the demo. We had built Lambda because it, was, it wasn't an accident. We were building a conversational dialogue based on AI because we had built Google Assistant. 
and we realized the limitations of our approach. Mm -hmm. We had this vision for where it could go, but it was a handcrafted system. So we knew we would need, you know, more of a deeper AI approach. And so, yes, you know, talking to Pluto was, we were effectively conversing with Lambda internally, but from safety standpoint, we had restricted it to be Pluto. Yeah. So here's the criticism. Mm -hmm. The platform shift that is occurring that everyone can see was not kicked off by Google, right? It was kicked off by OpenAI and ChatGPT and Microsoft to some extent. And it's because you were being responsible, you were being cautious. I think maybe the kick off this platform shift was an accident. I don't think that OpenAI was gunning for a moment like this. What made it so that Google is reactive to this moment instead of proactive in kicking off the, the platform shift? I would argue some of what drove the platform shift was the work we did in Transformers and yeah. you know, so a lot of the underlying technology too. What I think changed, the point of inflection is how ready users were, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's almost like that moment where you realize, you know, because these technologies, they have pitfalls, they have gaps, but you realize you're at a moment in time where people are ready to use it. They understand it and they are adapting to it. So that's the moment. And, you know, we realized it and we started working on it. I just think we took some time to get it right. Mm-hmm. And for us, that was important given our products are used by so many people. And in important moments, I thought it was important to get it right. So to me, it was just that. And so I don't think you look back, let's say you go back all the way to the internet. Google wasn't even there when the internet shift happened. So I think there is this notion that this, one of the deepest platform shifts on day one (laughs) is what sets it. Uh, I just don't subscribe to that. Yeah. Do you think the level of hallucination or error that you see in something like ChatGPT, is that just unacceptable for you as sort of the head of all product at Google? We have to figure out how to use it in the correct context, right? So for example, if you come to search and you're typing in Tylenol dosage for Mm three-year-old, it's not okay to hallucinate in that context, right? And so it's not that, you know, whereas if you're just coming and saying, help me write a like a poem on some topic. Yeah. It's okay if you get it wrong. So it's all I mean about getting it right is getting those details right. And we've made progress on the hallucination problem by in the context of search by grounding it, corroborating what we do there with our ranking work. And so it just takes time, but you know that, that you know so things like that uh, is what I meant. And, you know, it's a research problem. We, we, we'll all make progress on hallucination. So I don't think there's anything inherently, I'm not saying it's not usable. It's just that we had to take the time to get it right. So, but what I would say here is OpenAI is very much the disruptor here, right? They have a product that isn't quite as reliable as Google search and answering questions, but on some set of queries, it's better. It's more interesting to use, right? It's a different paradigm. The users were ready for it. But then it gets things wrong, just like left and right. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite examples here, people are walking to libraries asking to check out books that don't exist because they've asked for a list of books. That would not be acceptable, I think, as a result in Google search. There have been times where Bard, uh, I looked for some products in Bard, and it offered me a place to go buy and a URL, and <laughs> it doesn't exist at all, right? And so all these models have the same underlying problem, Yeah. right? You know, But doesn't mean that, you know, it's... There are plenty of use cases which we all get excited by. So I think both can be simultaneously true. But do you see that that sort of classic disruption curve? 
right? You, uh, this is a bad example and I'm just going to use yeah. it, but forgive me for it. Google searches the mainframe and AI is the, the PC, right? This is a classic disruption example. It doesn't do everything that the big computer can do, but it's cheaper, more accessible. Maybe the results are more useful in certain contexts, but it's also worse on a, a host of other variables. No, I don't, I don't see it that way because A, Google search is evolving. You yeah. know, what you're seeing, if Google search said, we're always going to be where it was, for many years, you know, we, d- we did evolve beyond the 10 blue links too. And people mm-hmm. would ask us, why are you doing it? We always would say, this is what users are looking for, right? You know, the debate sometimes users want answers. So we're always trying to get it right for users. This is a moment in which user expectation is shifting. Yeah. We're going to adapt to it. We're also doing BARD, right? And we are, you know, now making BARD more widely available. That gives us the sandbox where we, you know, in an unconstrained way, push the frontiers of what's possible too. So between search, the new search generative experience, between BARD, you know, to me, I view it as a moment in which this feels so far from a zero-sum game to me. Yeah. That's how we see it today. Like people are coming, using search, trying out new things which is why I'm excited to push out this new experience too, because I think people will respond to it. So a few months ago, I was at the launch of Bing, which is powered by ChatGPT. I saw Sachin it all there. And I'm sure you know this, but he said, I have a lot of respect for Sundar and his team, but I want Google to dance. And then he said, I want people to know that Microsoft made them dance. Uh, one, I just want to know how you felt when you heard him say that. And two, do you think he danced? Uh, you know, he dancing? Look, I've said I have a lot of respect for Satya and team as well. And I think he partly said that so that he would ask me this question. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure that happened, uh, yeah. It, you know, for me, maybe, maybe I'll say it this way. I think we started working on this new surge generative experience last year. To me, it's important in these moments to separate the signal from the noise. Yeah. For me, the signal here is there is a new way to make search better. In a way, we can make our user experience better but we had to get it right. And like, to me, that's the North Star. So it was important, that's the signal. The rest is noise to me. So, so to me, it was just important to work and get it right. And that's what we've been focused on. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health. And whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. 
Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with Sundar Pichai. So let's talk about search as it is now and search where you want it to go this generative experience. A search business is incredibly lucrative. The European Union has spent like two decades trying to introduce competition in search. Like there's a browser ballot or a search ballot on Android. Google is still dominant. But it has decayed over time, right? Is like SEO has infected the way. Like, have you ever done a search and ended up on some horrible SEO content farm? Does this happen to you? Uh, yes, but it's happened to me over uh, 20 years, right? You know, search has always been finding high quality content from others. So, you know, there are moments where we feel like, okay, there's a direction in which we are not getting it right or falling behind, but then we work hard to fix it. So it's always been search has been. Mm-hmm. That way, like, do you have an entire but we team? We quantitatively just... measure these things, though. Right? Yeah. So our work in search quality is about, you know, internally we work hard to quantitatively measure user satisfaction with search. Mm-hmm. How do users finding, you know, search? And we are seeing that over time. So in some ways, when you did the Bert work, the Mum work, all that led yeah. to some of the biggest quality improvements we saw in search in a long time. So you're right. I've run into content farms, and there are times users have said, "Look, I want more unique voices and perspectives." And you know, and we've been working on how to get that right. And so that's part of how we will evolve uh, search for certain use cases as well. You have a good example. I mean, you, you did a great redesign of the Word. I think it's about a year since you guys did it. Yeah, it's uh, closing on that. Yeah. Did it, and it's. Nothing like you're not designing it with any view of like what Google search wants you to do. <laughs> That's in there. Uh, 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 our designers uh, care about SEO. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. Uh, you know, but in a, in a good way. But I think like I see uh, the story stream, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and the most popular feed. I use it. I, I go there to see what's important. And I think Verge has done well through it, right? Yeah. And so I think it's still very possible <laughs> to do good, great work. I also think the information ecosystem is so large. I think people constantly underestimate it. When I look at the world of Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, yeah. uh, you know, destinations like what you are, New York Times is, Wall Street Journal is, the Washington Post is, in terms of news, I look at the sports destinations I go to. And so I think it's way more richer than people fully estimate. But th- this is not to say there's not always hard work to get it right, right? So, But uh, what I'm saying is you're only as good as the web, right? Always, like at yeah. the end of the day, Google search can only really show you what's on the web. A new, as good as the richness of the web. And, right. Yes. So, But if you're a new creator and you're, you just want to communicate with some audience, it is far more likely that you will end up on a TikTok or you'll end up on a Substack, or you'll end up on Instagram, uh, maybe YouTube, which you have access to. But those platforms are, they're not so visible to the average Google search user. So the new stuff, the high quality stuff, the more interesting stuff maybe, is ending up on platforms that Google search can't see. And the web is being 
push towards the incentives of Google search. Like, uh, when was the last time you tried to get a new credit card? It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. I've like used... that, just that experience, right, is like a, a totally optimized experience. Yeah. It's almost not human readable anymore in a particular yeah. way. Yeah. And I, I'm just wondering, you see search generative experience. Is this your opportunity to, to change those incentives? Do you see that as creating better incentives to create for the web again? Yeah, it's going to be a fact of life. I think mobile has come, video's here to stay. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be many different types of content. And, you know, so the web is not at the center of everything like it once was. Yeah. And I think that's been true for a while. Having said that, it's ironic that all the recent launches of yeah, uh, these products are all like you know, bar chat. They're all web-based yeah, products, I, and that's I how I can do thirty minutes on mobile app stores and why the innovations on the web. Um, but I don't think I have enough time. And uh, you know, Anila, I worked on Chrome. I've cared about the web for a long time. <laughs> the web belongs to no one, and yeah. so there is there is inherent value in that, and there are aspects of the web which are stronger than what most people realize. But I want to underestimate with AI as AI becomes multimodal. Mm -hmm this distinction we feel between text and images and video blurs over time. So today we feel those walls. At Google, we've always tried to bridge these things. We did universal search, you know, like, you know we try to bring all these forms together. With AI, I think, so what, maybe a young content creator creates it in the form of a video, but down the line, maybe there is ways by which you can consume it in the context of Google. Mm -hmm. Obviously, all the details have to be figured out, and you know there are mo business models. But these platforms have to let let you in, right? It's not you can't search against Instagram. Uh, I can, but we can against YouTube. Yeah, that's right. True. As an example, and maybe there are other platforms. We have to create the incentive for them to put it up there, and and then that's on us to do. So I think you know I, I look at it as is user need for information going up or down? It is. There's more sources of information than ever before. So I, I just somehow, I feel more optimistic over time because these same questions were very deep few years ago. Yep. Like I remember people asking me about it, but I, I come all the way today and, you know, and I think if anything, I'm using a lot more of the web still, right? And, you know, I go to the Verge website all the time. Oh, yeah, I we're go believers the, in the web. We're the yeah, last ones. And yeah. I understand. <laughs> but, you know, uh, my my usage still tells me uh, I go to websites directly every day where each day they're trying me over and over and over again to download the mm -hmm. mobile app. They're getting me to agree to some cookies and all that stuff. But the web has worked its way through all that. I hope it gets better, but, you know, but I, I, I'm optimistic. Yeah. As you answer more and more of the questions in the search generative experience, I think what you gave an example of uh, essentially an automated buying guide, right? I think it was for a bicycle. And then you asked a follow-up question. I want it in red and it showed you the right colors. Do you think that, that you're going to send out as much traffic from the search engine as you have in the past? It was a big part of our design goal mm -hmm. when I talk about getting it right. I think people come to Google with many different intents. There are times you just want an answer. I'm going to go to New York tomorrow. I want to know whether it's raining. Yeah. Right. You want the answer. But there are many times, particularly to Google, people come to explore, to discover. And I think that's true. People want to read reviews. So our search generative experience, in fact, we really didn't want to just do where you come and talk to LLM. That's why we did BART separately at first. And, you know, in a search generative experience, you will see a lot of links. You can click expand. 
we go through and give for each of what the LLM has generated, what are the supporting sources? So one of our design goals is to making sure people come and experience the richness of the web. Because I think it's important for us to create that win-win construct. And, and so, you know, that's something we put a lot of thought into it. So I'm optimistic we'll get it right there. I want to ask some decoder questions. There's a big one here. Uh, I joke that it's a show about org charts. You are the CEO of both Alphabet and Google. You made a big decision about your org chart. You had a company called DeepMind that was part of Alphabet. You pulled it into Google. You combined it with Google Brain, which is the AI part of Google. You picked a new leadership. Walk me through that decision in the context of, I wanted to make these products and I needed to change my org chart to get there. You know, for a while, uh, obviously, you know, I felt fortunate. We had arguably two of the top three, maybe research teams in the world. I mentioned this at IO. I think if you go back and look at the, uh, I didn't even put up all the list of the things they had done. You know, if you look at the 10 to 20 seminal breakthroughs, which led to this moment where we are, uh, those two teams together account for a large number of them. But it was clear to us that as we started going through this journey to build more capable models, one of the things that was holding us back was the computational resources that we would need. And so we would need to pull them together. So in some ways, and I think the good thing is the teams themselves came to the realization. So Gemini predates the, uh, the, the, the combining of the two teams. So they started working together jointly on Gemini. And that, that was a great experience because seeing... Mm-hmm. bringing, it's almost like being able to pull together two great teams and seeing that and how well it's working. And I think, you know, conversations with Demis and Jeff naturally uh, led to that moment. So I think it was a good time to do it uh, as we are also pivoting more from research to commercial production-ready models at scale and also the needing to do it safely and responsibly, which means you have to dedicate a lot of resources to testing and safety and so the combination of all that made it made it the right moment. And so that that's what led to this moment. Yeah. So that's the strategy side, yeah. right? You've got two teams. They have redundancies in their resource needs yeah. and their infrastructure needs. But then there's you actually deciding, okay, yes, right. I've got two leaders on two teams. I'm going to pick one. The teams have different cultures. I want this culture. I would like to get more of this output and less of this redundancy. How did you make those decisions? You know, you're right. It's always about... You know, I think the most important thing is having clarity about what you're trying to accomplish. And, uh, you know, once you do that, you know, it's always about then everything else follows from that. In this case, Jeff clearly had expressed a desire for a while to be more of a chief scientist. Uh, Jeff, before he literally has built some of the most important systems we use at Google today, he is, at least to me, without a doubt, the best engineer Google has ever had. And his desire to spend more time uh, doing that. And Demis is an extraordinary leader of teams, and he has been working on building capable AI systems from the first day I met him. This is what uh, he has been wanting to do. And and so he's super excited. So the combination of knowing the people you have, what makes sense, all falling from the first principle of what you're trying to accomplish is what let, leads to the other decision. So in some ways, it was uh, you know, a clearer set of next steps from there. How did, you, did you make a phone call? Did you have a meeting? Did you have Gmail write a note for you? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know, we had a lot of uh, good meetings. James Manika played a important role because in the context of Gemini, we were bringing these teams together anyway. And, and 
Jeff naturally was spending time doing a lot of the engineering work. And, and so it all made sense and just a few conversations and, you know, led to the right outcome. I would say bringing the two teams together is indicative of a, a larger change in Google and the tech industry at large, right, which is getting smaller, more efficient, less redundancy. Uh, you and I have told many jokes about Google's six messaging apps in the past. Are you focused on tightening up on, on more focused execution here? Uh, you know, yes. And the one thing I would say, look, I, I do think it's one of our strengths. Uh, it's not an accident we have 15 products with the scale we have or six products over 2 billion users each. You know, these are products for which we have committed for a long time. But clearly, we all are trying to do more with constraints now. Yeah. And areas where you can be more nimble, we have been very focused on that. And we've always done things, you know, at one point we had YouTube music and Google Play <laughs> music. So I had to combine the two teams and said, no, you're going to be one music team. Yeah. Right. And and so there's always moments like that. You're, but you're, that's the default for Google, right? Is you have multiple shots and then you combine them in the in end. In some cases, but, you know, you think about, I think people underestimate, you think about search or you think about maps or you think about photos or you think about Gmail, you think about workspace, you think about the focus we have had on cloud, you think about the fact we bought YouTube in 2006 mm -hmm. and how we have executed since then to make YouTube what it is today. I think we have some high profile areas like messaging, <laughs> but even there, if you look at our last few years, the focus on both Google Meet and chat and the platform side of RCS, the fact we have relentlessly focused to start from zero. Mm -hmm. And I'm confident, maybe announced RCS is now over 800 million users. There's a also, big applause line yesterday. Yeah. And Dieter was the loudest cheer in the room. <laughs> I heard him. I, I literally <laughs> think, you know, I could pick out Dieter's applause from the others. But, you know, I think, I think we are committed to being deeply focused. I mean, even AI is an example of that. We've been focused on AI for, you know, over a decade. And in the case of AI, it was a deliberate decision to have because how important it was we were fine with having that exploration that came from two different teams because those teams had different strengths. Mm -hmm. Like DeepMind were early believers in reinforcement learning. Yeah, In a way, Google wasn't. So to me, that diversity was important too. But there are moments where you say, you know, it's time to, you know, approach it a bit differently. Uh, but I think these are decisions you need to make. There's another challenge for Google inside of all this. If you believe it's a platform shift, this might be the first platform shift that regulators understand because it's very obvious what kind of labor will be displaced. Lawyers, mostly, is my gather. <laughs> like, right, like policy, they, they can see, okay, a bunch of white collar labor will go away. Like a C plus email about a transaction, entire floors of those people can, can be reduced. And they seem very focused on that risk. And then there's the general AI risk that we all talk about. When Google first did search, it was an underdog, right? And it won a lot of court cases along the way that built the internet. Uh, the Google Books case, the uh, image search case with Perfect 10, the Viacom case with YouTube, right? It was an underdog, but it was obviously delivering a ton of value. Now you're at the White House having an AI summit. I'm confident you're going to end up in government, like capitals around the world talking about AI. Do you think you're in a different position now than that scrappy underdog inventing the internet? Are you, you're, you're the incumbent. Are you playing a different role? Two parts to the question. On the first part, briefly, you know, for 20 years of tech automation, people have predicted all kinds of jobs would go away. 
movie theaters were supposed to end and <laughs> kind of did. Uh-huh, you know but you know movies are thriving more than ever before and uh, uh, there's a writer strike right i mean the 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 labor cost paid to writers has dropped so precipitously that they're on strike right now no but uh, there's been writer strike before and those things will continue right yeah. there, there's always going to be all i mean is unemployment over the last 20 years of tech mm-hmm. automation uh, hasn't fully 20 years ago when people exactly predicted what tech automation would do. Yeah. There are very specific pronouncements of entire job categories which would go away. Mm-hmm. It hasn't fully played out. So I think there's a chance that AI may actually, because I think the legal profession is a lot more than, you know, there's a chance, you know, well, more about being a lawyer, lawyer. That's why. <laughs> uh, which is why I can opine on it because I quite <laughs> don't know a lot about it. But, you know, something tells me you know, more people may become lawyers because the underlying reasons why law exists and legal systems exist aren't going to go away because those mm-hmm. are humanity's problems, Yeah. right? And so AI will make the profession better in certain ways, might have some unintended consequences, but I'm willing to almost bet 10 years from now, maybe there are more lawyers. I don't know, oh, no. right? I don't know. But, you know, so it's not exactly clear to me how all this plays out. I think too often we think there are new professions constantly getting created. I don't mean to lightly. I do think there are big societal labor market disruptions that will happen. Mm-hmm. Governments need to be involved. There needs to be adaptations. Skilling is going to be important. But I, I think we shouldn't underestimate the beneficial side of some of these things too. And it's complicated is maybe how I would uh, how I would say it. On your second question, governments ever in the legal systems will always have to grapple with the same set of problems. There's a new technology. It has a chance to bring unprecedented benefits. It has downsides. I think you're right with AI. People are more trying to think ahead than ever before, which mm-hmm. gives me comfort because of some of the potential downsides to this technology. I think we need, we need to think about it. We need to anticipate as early as we can. But I do think the answers for each of this is not always obvious to me, right? I yeah. think, you know, it's not clear to me you hold back AI in a straightforward way. That's that's not the right answer. It has geopolitical implications. It has, so it's, it's again a complex thing we will grapple with uh, over time. I think from our standpoint, we are a bigger company. Mm-hmm. So I do think we will come to it in a more responsible way. There are places where we will engage and try to find what the right answers are. Uh, and so maybe our approach will be different for sure, I think, yeah. as we go through it. One of the things I think about a lot is that set of cases I talked about. Google Books or Viacom on YouTube, right? You're, you were distributing more information than ever before. And there was a bunch of media companies who said, no, that's ours, you can't have it. And you had to go fight it out. And just access to the information is so valuable to people that Google was able to win. This is a different turn, right? Publishers around the world, media people, Hollywood artists, Drake are saying, hey, that's mine. And you took it and you trained an AI on it. And now there's fake Drake singing songs on YouTube. And they're going to try to stop you, right? They're, they're, there's already copyright lawsuits. Do you think that you're, as the incumbent, you have a bigger responsibility to that conversation than some of the startups who might be running that original Google playbook of saying, we're going to ask for forgiveness and not, not permission? I do think we have a bigger responsibility. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I think YouTube has done well, you know, I think with the work on content ID and, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's brought a deep framework by which content right holders are, uh, you know, that the system works. So I think our responsibility there is making sure 
that this new wave continues to help artists and the music industry. And so it's it's something we would think about deeply, I think, as we go through I mean, this. Do you think that you will have to share revenues with publishers and musicians? Right, because this is the thing they're worried about the most. I mean, in the case of YouTube, we already yeah. clearly directly do. And But I also think it's important in these moments, we aren't the only player. These are big disruptions coming. Our goal would be to help the music industry yeah. partner with them and help them. So that means maybe giving artists choice and control over transformative works and, you know, and, and giving them a say in it and, you know, figuring out those right answers. Do you think you have to get ahead of the law? Right. I mean, I, and this is a question here, right? As you're saying, there's a lot of players, maybe government should like make it so Drake can get paid when AI Drake sings a song. Or do you think you have to get ahead of the law to be a good partner? We all have to meet where users are going and where trends are evolving. And so we plan to be, you know, when we say bold and responsible, I mean it. You will see us be bold in some of these cases. But underlying all that is a, a, is a responsible direction. We want to get it right. So I want to ask the biggest picture question of all. Google is 25. You've been the CEO. You took over from the founders. You turned into Alphabet. You've had a very intense and very successful run at Google, especially if you look at just the business. Right? It's grown immensely. We've talked here about big decisions, right? Restructuring, appointing new leaders, moving people around, changing the culture to be more focused, navigating regular competitors asking you to dance. All of that requires like a very particular kind of ambition and focus. So just for you personally, what is that ambition? What is driving you personally to take the company through this moment? You know, it's it's really from first principles, having clarity. I, I believe in our mission for me and getting access to technology made a big difference in my life. So the driving force for me has always been about bringing information and computing to more people to benefit society. And so out of that comes the clarity for all the stuff I need to do. So working from the first principle in some ways, then it becomes simpler, but it's an exciting time. Look, I've been preparing for this moment around AI for 10 plus years. It's not an accident at Google. You know, we brought Jeff Hinton in or you know, <laughs> we built Google Brain or we acquired DeepMind. We spent the uh, investment that's needed. We built TPUs, we announced TPUs at IO maybe six years ago now. And so this is something I've anticipated for a long time. So to me, it's I'm excited that it's an inflection point. But to your earlier question, because we have been uh, doing this for 25 years, we know how important it is to be responsible from day one, which is why at Google I.O. you heard about our early work on watermarking and metadata and images. I could have done an hour on metadata. You should be very happy that I did. <laughs> <laughs> Some other time. Yeah. So, but, you know, both parts are important, but it's an exciting time. Yeah. Well, Sundar, thank you so much for being on Decoder. I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Nilay. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Sundar Pichai for taking the time to chat today. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I want to hear what you think about Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. We actually read all the emails. Or you can hit us up on Twitter and TikTok at DecoderPod. If you like the show, please send it to a friend and make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Raghu Manavalan and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.